Yeah, I like that line. He's a different kind of king, and he always was, and he always will be. Not a political king. Too many people caught up in politics today, don't you think? I definitely think so. Uh, we need to be free to preach the gospel, and the gospel is the good news. And that starts with the reality that Jesus died on the cross, just like that one behind me, and that he rose from the grave on the third day, that he conquered death. And that's for you, and that's for me, because we're burdened down with sin. Sin drags us down to the grave, and the grave is permanent. But Jesus conquered the grave. He was up on the third day. But you know, the only way that you and I would know that is because there were witnesses. And uh, so you just saw this video about uh, Peter and John. We talked about Peter as a witness last week. And uh, a lot of the dialogue that went on in that, in that video is imagined by the writer of the script. But the reality that both Peter and John witnessed the death, resurrection, and throughout that ministry, his life, is true. Um, today we're going to look at John as a witness. And uh, as I did last week, I want to start with John's calling. And what I'd like for you to do, rather than me just doing some sort of a historical biography uh, as though you know, you're at school and this is a history lesson or something, what I'd like for you to do is examine your life and lay it down alongside John's life. And I want you to say, this is how I am like and this is how I am unlike John. Because in addition to being witnesses, I think that these disciples, these initial um, first apostles are kind of like archetypes, right? Um, they stand as examples for us. And you probably will see yourself in those people. I think it's, it's wise when you read scripture to identify as much as you can with the situations and the people in Scripture so that you're not just uh, treating it clinically and distantly, right? So let's look at John, and, and again, evaluate yourself as we, as we look at him. Um, his calling. Uh, we all need to be called. We're called out of the world. We're called to follow Jesus. We're called to gather together and to be the people of God, as I said last week. Jesus started his ministry shortly after John, who was his relative. Many scholars believe John was Jesus' cousin, uh, had been executed. And uh, John was baptizing people as a symbol of repentance, uh, as a symbol of their repentance, that is. And uh, he was saying, John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, prepare the way for the Lord, the coming king. And then he pointed to Jesus and he said, see him, that's the coming king. And as I indicated last week, he pointed to Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew was one of John's followers and Andrew went and found his brother Peter brought Peter to Jesus, Jesus changed Peter's name to Cephas, and we don't know how long after that, it was some time, uh, not a terribly long period of time, but some time after that, that at the experience where Jesus preached out of Peter's boat and then asked Peter to go back out into the sea and cast his net for some fish, and by the way, I didn't say anything about this last week, but um, this was probably like early afternoon or at least late morning, when Jesus said this, that's not when you go fishing. Uh, do we have anybody that fishes in here? Any fishermen? None of you. Okay, that's awesome. Um, 
Fishermen wake up before the sun rises to go out and fish. And these fishermen uh, were commercial fishermen and they didn't fish with a line, they fished with a net, but that's what they did. In fact, Peter clearly says to Jesus, we worked all night and caught nothing. That must have been a depressing night for them. I mean, they're just going all over the Sea of Galilee, also called the Lake of Tiberias, and they're throwing that net out and they're pulling it up and nothing, 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 nothing. You know, I have a, a theology professor uh, that said that uh, on at least one occasion when this happened, which is also in John, it's at the end of John, that Jesus may have spent all night chasing fish away from the net. So God may have spent time chasing fish away from their net so that they could see uh, that, uh, that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, I don't know that that's the case, but I think it's an interesting thought. Uh, nonetheless, Jesus uh, tells Peter, but also the others who were with him, who were in business with him. So Peter was in business as a commercial fisherman, but so were James and John, and they worked with their father, Zebedee, and they were all commercial fishermen. So they had all worked all night and caught nothing. Now, I don't know, uh, you know, if you've had those days or those weeks on your job when uh, maybe you rely on tips and you just didn't get any tips, uh, maybe you are on call and you didn't get called. Uh, I had plenty of those situations back when I worked in various, uh, various jobs. And so that particular week, you didn't make any money. Well, you know, what happens when you meet Jesus and he makes you prosper? You know, some people would just take the idea that Jesus made them prosper, latch onto that and say, wow, that's awesome. I want prosperity. I want health. I want uh, fame. I want, you know, all of the things that the, the world offers. And I want God to put me in a position to receive all the goods that the world offers. But Jesus didn't offer them that. What he did is he said, hey, go back out, cast your nets into the sea. And they did. And by the way, this is in Luke 5. I read it last week. And, you know, you will, you'll pull up a catch. So Peter is, uh, I think his emotional state is uh, discouragement and disbelief. And the reason that I say that is because of how Peter reacted at the end. They threw their nets out and they hauled in such a great catch of fish, they had to call their partners, that's James and John from the other boat, and they're filling their boats with these fish to the degree that they, it starts making their boat try to sink. That's a lot of fish, right? But rather than just be enthusiastic about the fish, Peter is embarrassed. He feels guilty. He feels ashamed. And he falls down on his knees and he says, go away from me, Lord. I, I'm unworthy. Well, why would he say that? Because he knew what his attitude was. Have you ever done that? Have you ever come to church and your attitude just wasn't the right attitude? You're like, okay, I'm gonna go to church this morning. And then the Lord blesses you and you're like, wow, I am so glad, you know? Or you get up in the morning and you know you need to read the Bible, but you're like, you know what? I just don't feel like this this morning. I just don't wanna do this this morning. I'm still tired, where's my coffee? But then you open the Bible and God speaks to you. Have you ever had that experience? And you're thinking, why did I doubt you, Lord? Why was I so up into my flesh? And I think that's where Peter was. Now, it might sound like I'm still talking about Peter, but I want you to understand that it was at that same time that Jesus called Peter that he called James and John. He said, don't worry. For, he said, from now on, you'll be fishing for people, fishing for men. 
and it says that they pulled their, their boats to the shore and they left everything there. They left everything behind and they followed Jesus. Are you willing to do that? I think I asked you last week. Have you done that? Are you willing to do that? If God calls you to do something else other than what you're doing, if God calls you to some sort of ministry that is uh, other than what you're able to do in your current job or educational situation, would you obey that? Or do you just want God to bless you in your current situation? Now, I'm not saying that he won't bless you in your current situation. I'm not saying that he won't use you in your current situation. I'm not saying that that's not his will. My question is, are you willing to do God's will at any cost? You see, um, what I think you and I should understand is that Jesus called these guys to be fishers of men. And so the purpose of becoming a disciple is not self-improvement. Did you hear that? You might be under the impression that being a disciple of Jesus, I've told you many times, means becoming more like Jesus, but you might think of that as just character development for its own sake, of becoming more moral, of becoming more holy, and that just kind of separates you from people, and you just become this museum piece. We can just kind of set you up somewhere and say, my, my, you are so holy. You are, you are wonderful. You are Christ-like. But that's not what Jesus calls disciples to be. He said, I'm calling you to be fishers of men. So his purpose is not to make us into better people, but to make us into better people in order to teach others to call them to follow Jesus also. Amen? You're called to community. That's what church, that's why church is so important. But you're also called to interact with people who are in need of Jesus outside of the church community. And that means that when you interact with them, you need to be willing to share the gospel, you need to be willing to share the good news with them. Are you willing to do that? Are you uh, putting yourself in a position to do that, right? Um, Jesus called us to make disciples. If you remember in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the last thing that Matthew records Jesus telling the disciples or commanding the disciples was what we call the Great Commission. He said, all power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go into all the world and what? Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how you set them apart. Baptize them. And teaching them to observe everything that I have taught you. So that's what we do. We seek to make disciples and we, uh, we identify them as Jesus' disciples by baptizing them. And then we teach them what Jesus taught us and they do the same thing and so on. So in other words, when we're talking about the witnesses, we're talking about those first witnesses. But I'm also hoping that you will be convinced and convicted that you need to be a witness that you need to pass along this story, this good news to other people. Um, they were called to be conduits of the Holy Spirit and of God's forgiveness. Uh, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to them in the upper room. Listen to what he, uh, what he, watch what he did and listen to what he said to them at that first appearance in the upper room. John 20, 22 through 23 records, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. 
if you withhold the if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's a that's a very very powerful statement, and this is why Jesus was so strong when he said, "Unless you forgive others, your sins will not be forgiven." We need to release people from whatever it is that they've done to us. Amen. Because we have been released, we have been forgiven, our sin has been removed. So we need to remove any obstacle between us. Now you can't change what other people think of you. You really can't. You can be a better person to them, you can be a better example to them, you can be the change you wanna see in them, but you can't change other people. Say, I can't change anybody else. You really can. In fact, I remember I, I worked for, for some time uh, in the addiction community and in the mental health community. And that was a phrase that I heard repeated over and over and over again from therapists. You can't change anybody. See, this is what a lot of people do. They wanna go around and they think that their problems are not really their problems, it's other people. These other people have done this to me. Kids, you may be looking at uh, some difficulty that you're having in school. And I've heard kids plenty of times say, well, my teacher just doesn't like me. Or maybe she just doesn't like the way you act. Right? Or maybe she's just frustrated because you don't turn your assignments in. Maybe she's just upset or he's just upset because you don't pay attention and you talk or you do things that you're not supposed to do. But the reality is you can't change your teacher, but you can change how you deal with your teacher. So rather than saying your, your teacher calls on you, you say, what? You ever done that? How about your parents? How on your mom or your dad or your auntie or your grandma say your name and you say, what? But you can change your attitude. You can deal with things differently. You know what I was taught to say? When my mom called my name, you know what I was taught to say? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma and I was smart because if you didn't say yes, ma'am, you got smacked. Now, maybe your parents aren't smackers, but my mom was a smacker. She'd say, yes, what? Uh, oh, uh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Now, I know today it is, it is completely unpopular to, uh, to use corporal punishment, but my mom used to make me go pick out the belt that I was going to get spanked with. Man, I pick out the widest, lightest one I could find. You, you don't want to pick out, you think, oh, this skinny belt. No, those skinny belts are deadly. They're evil. They're just straight up evil, right? So they were called to be conduits of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills you and then he overflows onto other people and he ministers forgiveness. They were called to be light and salt in the world. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You also find it in Luke chapter 6. He said, you're the salt of the earth. That means that we are the saver, but it also means that to a degree we are the saviors. Now Jesus is the savior, but one of the things that salt did in the ancient world was to preserve things. They didn't have freezers, right? So what happens when you leave meat out at room temperature? Yeah, you don't wanna eat that unless you wanna get real sick. Right, so we freeze meat. What they did is they cured it, C-U-R-E-D. And that meant that they pounded salt into it and this was a way to keep it from rotting. And this was one of the things I think that Jesus was trying to help us to understand when he said you're to be the salt of the, of the earth, right? We're to, we're to be there for savor and flavor, but we're to be there to cure the world's ills by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He said in conclusion, that is Jesus said, um, that we're to shine our light so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Notice, they're, they're to see your good works. You don't hide your good works, but you don't perform your good works so that they can see you. You don't perform your good works so that they can give you glory or they can give you credit. Now, I've said this many times before, that doesn't mean that you need to have false humility when somebody compliments you. You don't say, oh, it's, that's not me. That's, it's, no, none of that's me, right? You can't, I can't accept that. And I've heard people say this, and I understand where they're coming from, and if you've said this, I'm not trying to come down on you, but I've heard people say this, you know, oh, that's not me, it's just God. But it might be that God doesn't want credit for that, right? I, you know, I had somebody, you know, they write a poem or they, they write a play or whatever, and they're like, oh, it's not me, it's all God. And I was like, eh, that's kind of not that great. And so, <laughs> God's not a very good artist then, is he, right? No, that's not what it is. What I do is I say, thank you very much, praise God. So whatever God has done to inspire me and enable me to write something, and I can tell you, I've written a lot of plays. Haven't written one in a long time, but I've written a lot of plays because we used to do this big thing every year around Halloween. And I've written a lot of plays. And there were times when I thought, man, this is, this is really good. This is, and now I've gone back and read some of them and I'm like, oh, what were you thinking? Have you ever, have you ever done that? Have you ever read, read one of your old journals or something like that? And you're like, wow, I was really immature. <laughs> what was I thinking? You know? Or, you know, I'll read some poem that I wrote, because I periodically I'll write poems. I agree with William Wordsworth, a romantic poet, who defined poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotion. I completely agree. I can't just sit down and write a poem, because it's just going to be terrible. I have to be inspired, and I have to be inspired by something usually that's irritating me. It's true. When something's really irking me or bothering me, rather than just write a really long sermon, sometimes I'll just write a short poem. And there have been times that those have been quite good, and there have been times when I go back and read them and go, oh, well, maybe not, right? But if someone compliments me, if someone compliments you, what I hope you'll do is you will receive the compliment and say thank you. And then give glory to God, say praise God. Right? So we're always going to point beyond ourselves because that's the kind of people we are. We want people to see our good works, but they want us, they, we want them to glorify our Father who is in heaven. And that's the kind of person that John was called to be, that Peter was called to be, that James was called to be, that you're called to be. They were also called to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God. What is an ambassador? This is someone that represents a particular country in another country, right? So let's say, I don't know, so one of you in this room or someone paying attention online, it's a, it's a possibility that God could call you to be an ambassador someday to another country and represent this country. Well, you want to be the best representative possible. You want to have the, provide the best example that you can possibly provide, right? So these guys were, and, and ladies as well, were called to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God. They were messengers also of the gospel. They were to share the good news of Jesus to everyone that they encountered. Listen to what the scripture says about this. This is the apostle Paul addressing this theme of being a, an ambassador and a messenger in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, which by the way, 
on Wednesday night, I am teaching through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I'm calling it God Loves Dysfunctional People because the Corinthians were really dysfunctional people. But if you put 1st and 2nd Corinthians together, we have more writing from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church than any other church, and that's why we learn so much. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Reconciled be, means come back to God. We're all alienated. See, there's this, there's this statement that is made oftentimes by people that we're all children of God, but that's a lie. We're not. You can be. We're all God's creation. We're all made in his image, but that image is bent or broken. We are fallen creatures in need of restoration, in need of reconciliation back to God. That's the message you're teaching. You're not saying, you know, well, we're all children of God and there's many paths you know, to the same God. It doesn't matter what your religion is, as long as you believe strongly enough. You're just lying to people. And you're lying to yourself. We're thinking we're making people feel better, but you don't need to make people feel better about a bad situation, amen? If somebody's in a bad situation, in a bad relationship, if somebody is doing something that is self-destructive, that they're doing something that is making them sick or harming themselves or other people, you're not doing them a service by saying, oh, it's okay, we're all like that. We all have problems, we're all weak. And you just let them go on. The first thing that I need to do is I need to live my life better, right? It's impossible for me to guide somebody beyond where I've gone, right? So if I'm caught up in the same weakness, frailty, sin as someone else, I can agree with them, hey, we need to get better, but I can't tell them how to get better because I've refused to take the medicine. I refuse to get better. But you see what I can do if I have taken the medicine, if I have changed my life, I can go back to people who are like I was and I don't point my finger at them and I don't make them feel worse, but neither do I, do I say, oh, you know what, I was, I was where you are once, I understand, and then walk away. No, I point the way to a better life. I show them how they can be better people and ideally, I do that first by my example. Guys, ladies, that's why we call ourselves Life Well Church. Living life well. You need to live a better life. And people are going to see that life and they're going to want to have that life that you're living. Further, life well is to use the word well in the sense of a, a hole that is dug to get water out of the ground. That well is dug in us so that the Holy Spirit can come up and out through us. That's what Jesus promised the woman at the well. That's what Jesus promised at Jerusalem in one of his, uh, one of his messages to them, that we will become, we will become, your heart will become a spring of water, a well of water springing up to everlasting life. The Spirit of God 
Again, what I said earlier, they were to be conduits of the Holy Spirit. You and I are to be conduits of the Holy Spirit. The well of, of life is dug in us and the Spirit overflows onto other people. So we're not getting in arguments with people. We're not pointing the finger at them and condemning them and trying to win them over to our political point of view. I've gotten to the point where on Facebook, I'm not arguing with anybody anymore. I'm just not. I tried debating for a while because I thought it was healthy for people to see intelligent answers to some of these questions. But what I've discovered, especially on social media, is people don't want to hear that. They just want their biases confirmed, right? They just, they're creating an echo chamber and they want everybody in their echo chamber to say what they're saying. Say what I'm saying after me. Good. Then we're right. And everybody else that says anything different is wrong. I just don't want to deal with that anymore. If people are willing to listen, that's great. I posted a scripture last week from uh, the Proverbs, and it said, if you rebuke a mocker, he will hate you. Amen? So, if you're on Facebook, how many of you are on Facebook? The smiley emoji, right, the laughing emoji, that's not for mockery. If you feel the need to post that on someone's comment because you want to mock it, you're the problem, not them. Uh-oh, get myself in trouble. Half the people that are here this week are going to be here next week. Everybody's turning off their phone right now. I'll listen to that guy. Why do we feel like we need to mock people? It doesn't make you better. It makes you lower. When you mock somebody and they're talking and you're like, nah, 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 you haven't said anything except I don't like you. I don't like what you're saying right now. Well, I already know that. And adding emotion to it doesn't change anything. So, you know, what you might have to do is unfollow some folks or unfriend some folks. You can still be friends with people that are not on your social media. You do realize that, right? Because a lot of times these people that respond the way they respond would never do that to your face, would they? They wouldn't. I've had great relationships with people. They've been very kind. I've had people in, in my ministry before. And on Facebook, they turn into little monsters. No, I don't do disrespect anymore. I don't. If you see somebody that posts something disrespectful, you won't see them as my friend for very long because you're not a friend. That's not what friends do. You and I need to understand what trust is and what friends do, and that's not how, and kids, this is, you know, I've said this to you guys before, because you're learning how to develop friendships. If you've got somebody that says they're your friend, but they just make fun of you all the time, they're not your friend. Just because they want to hang around you doesn't mean they're your friend. If they mistreat you, if they hit you, if they make fun of you, just get away from them. You don't need that. You don't need people like that in your life. You want people that will encourage you. Now, that doesn't mean like I'm saying, I'm saying this to kids, I'm saying to teenagers, if you have a really good friend and they see you doing something foolish, they may call you out and say, hey, why are you doing that? Why did you say that? Well, they're not trying to be mean to you if they're trying to help you. That's correction. That's what we need to be. That's the kind of people we need to be, right? So, um, and finally, uh, John and these other uh, disciples were called to be witnesses of the resurrection. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, um, and you, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, that's where they were right then. In Judea, that was the surrounding state. In Samaria, those were the people that were unlike them, but somewhat like them. 
and to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's Acts 1.8, and that's really an outline of Acts, because we see that that's what happens with the gospel. It moves out. So very quickly, I want to isolate John and look at his character. His natural character needed to be transformed. So does yours. Amen? You may be naturally a gifted person. You may be naturally a kind person. You may have been raised in church. You may have been raised to be godly. But all of us, apart from God, are a mess. Amen? James and, James and John uh, were called Boanerges by Jesus. You know what Boanerges means? Sons of thunder. Thunder! Yeah, I told you two weeks ago, I watched the, the uh, Ragnarok movie, uh, the, the Thor Ragnarok movie. That's what they called him. Thunder! That's what these guys were. They were thunder! You know, a lot of times John is thought of as being this more meek, quiet, self-effacing disciple. As we're going to see in a moment, he was the disciple that leaned against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Um, he was the one that was closest to Jesus. We don't think of him like that. But you know what? These guys were, they were loud. They were boisterous. At one point in time, they were going through Samaria. Remember, I just said those were the people that were like, and yet unlike the Jewish people. The Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans. I won't go into the long history, but part of it was racism. And part of it had to do with a difference uh, of belief. And uh, suffice it to say, they just didn't like those people. There are people that you just viscerally don't like. It may be people of a certain age, maybe people of a certain ethnicity. Heaven forbid you would be willing to uh, confess that in our era. Maybe people of a particular religious background, maybe people that are from a certain part of town. But sometimes there are just certain people that we just ah, knee jerk, don't like, eh, don't like them. I don't like loudmouth people. Say, really, Pastor, because you kind of are one. That's probably why I don't like them. <laughs> I probably see what I don't like. But if I'm somewhere, and I don't care if it's, if it's women or men, and they're like, nah, nah, nah. You know, have you ever noticed that there are people that want to do business on their phone at 100 decibels in the middle of wherever? Right? They're just on the phone, and they're doing business right there. And you're just telling us, I, I'm not interested, dude. I'm not interested. I just, you know, that's my thing, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want to be, this is the part of my character that needs to be transformed. Now, I will tell you this in case I don't get to it. John is my favorite disciple. But chances are I would not have liked John before he met Jesus. I think, this is just me. Again, this is one of those things where I'm just going to hold it out here and you can take it and kind of roll it around and evaluate it. I don't have hard evidence with this. I could go into the details. But I think John was strongly influenced by his older brother, James, who was the bigger mouth of the two. I might be wrong. But James of the James and John pair was the first one who was martyred. That's the first martyr. And I think that's because he continued to be bold, but there are certain people who just get on other people's nerves. Amen? Say, yep, once again, Pastor, that's you, right? Well, he needed to have his character changed. James and John were called sons of thunder. They were loud, they were bold, but they were remarkable. They were powerful men, even if they didn't always get it right. So they were traveling, I started to tell the story. They were traveling through Samaria, 
Jews didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jews. And the Samaritans were resisting them because what would happen is the Jews from Galilee, Samaria it was like this. Here's the north, Galilee. In the middle, Samaria. In the south, Judea with Jerusalem here. They had various feasts throughout the year that required every adult man to attend that feast. So what would happen is the residents of Galilee, instead of going straight through Samaria down to Jerusalem, would do this. The Jordan River is over here, okay? It's on the east side. What they would do is they would come down to the border of Samaria, they would cross over to the other side of the Jordan River, walk around Samaria, then cross back over into Judea and go to Jerusalem. All this to avoid the Samaritans. Well, the Samaritans didn't like them for many reasons, but that was one of the reasons. Well, Jesus didn't care. He wasn't, he wasn't a bigot, right? He didn't have a problem with Samaritans, religiously or ethnically or anything else. So Jesus and the disciples just went straight through Samaria. Well, the Samaritans started saying, hey, hey, what are you doing? And making fun of them, whatever. And James and John said, do you want us to call fire down out of heaven to devour them? Whoa. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, well, stop, enough. And in some manuscripts, he, he is recorded as saying, you do not know what spirit you are of. And in some manuscripts, it says, do you want us to call fire down into heaven even as Elijah did? Well, you know, they saw themselves as being part of that. You know, there are people who become religious people. They become very devoted and they become very legalistic and censorious, judgmental, right? And they're, they're very serious about their faith but they're very off-putting when it concerns the gospel. This was the Apostle Paul. He was killing Christians until Jesus literally arrested him in place on the road to Damascus, struck him to the ground, blinded him. And for three days, Paul couldn't see, and he didn't eat, and he didn't even drink anything. And finally, uh, the Apostle Paul got up, and a Christian man came and put his hands on him and healed his eyes and baptized him, and from that point on, the Apostle Paul was the greatest witness for the gospel. We need to be transformed. So these folks were, the, James and John, they're also arrogant. They asked Jesus for a preferred position in the kingdom of God. Are you ready for this? In Mark, it is recorded that James and John walked up to Jesus and said, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Really? <laughs> it, that's what it says. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, Jesus could have said, shut up, get out of here. But he said, what do you want? And they said, we want to sit on your right and your left in your kingdom. And Jesus said, well, he said, uh, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And Jesus meant suffering. He meant dying on the cross. Well, they didn't know all that, but they said, we're able. And he said, you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. But he said, as for putting you on my right and my left, that's not my call. Wow, he's Jesus. And he said, that's not his call. That's the Father's call, apparently, right? Which tells you even within the Godhead, there's an order. Now, we also have recorded in Matthew's gospel that their mother came and asked the same thing for them. Wow. I'd be embarrassed to have mommy come and ask that for me. But you know what it tells me? It tells me that James and John were family men. They were in business with their father and they respected their mother enough not to stop her. 
So I can imagine this. Now, I don't know if this is the order of things, but I can imagine this. James and John go to Jesus. Jesus tells them what I've just told you. That's not my call. And so their mother said, what did he say? Well, he said this. Just, just let me talk to him. <laughs> Jesus, these, these boys, they've been following you around for all this time. And, and I, want you to do, I want you to do something for them. Because they really love you. They really believe in you. I want you to let them to sit on your right and your left in your kingdom. And Jesus told her the same thing, right? So their character had to be changed. Jesus said, hey, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you need to be the least. You need to be the servant of all. That means you need to be the one that is doing the dirty jobs at church and not calling attention to yourself for them. You need to be the one that is always willing to hold doors and come in last and do all those sorts of things because that's what a person who is following Jesus is like. But it should be said that they were two-thirds of Jesus' inner circle. The closest disciples to Jesus were Peter, James, and John. Very quickly now, um, there had to be a character change. John's character changed as a result, changed as a result of following Jesus. He became meek. Now that word gets, uh, it's got a bad connotation, I think. Meek. Let me ask you this. Does that word sound weak to you? Does meek sound weak? It kind of does to me. But the word that meek translates in Greek doesn't mean weak. It means someone who is strong, but they have it under control. Now let me use another word. Gentle. That's a better word, isn't it? Someone can be very, very strong and gentle, can't they? Right? So... Uh, Pastor Craig and I uh, were uh, watching uh, the, the Nelson baby, that sweet little thing right there. She's so pretty. She was right there at the door. We were watching her, and she was looking at me, weren't you? Weren't you? You were looking right at me. Well, when, you, you know, when Elijah's a strong guy, he goes out there and runs trails and all this other stuff. Well, he's gentle when he picks up his baby. You, you have to be gentle with them, right? Now, I've seen some dads... You know, and it's usually when they're, when they're, they're, it's usually their sons and it's usually when they get older, they're like jerking them around and throwing them up in the air and stuff like that, you know. Okay, well, I get that to a degree, but, you know, I don't know. You know, you know how to raise your kids and you've probably seen stuff on this. It's not wise to grab a kid by the arms and lift them up. Did you know that, right? Dragging them by the arms up here like this, right? You just, okay. Now. I remember, Asher, when you were little, your daddy would throw you up in the air. You kind of liked it, right? So there, there's gentleness that is power under control. You know how to deal with that baby, right? You're not, you're not treating a baby the same way you're going to treat a 14-year-old. Now, dads, that's, or I should say teenagers and dads, uh, that's when you need a dad. And you get to be 14, 15, 16, and you got a mouth on you, that's when you need a dad there to slap it off of you. Moms, I know you try. I really do. I know you try. But I can remember when I was 14 years old, my mom always told me when I was a kid, she always told me, I'm going to spank you until you're in your 20s. Well, I believed her. But when I was 14, I was taller than her and probably outweighed her. And I don't know what I did wrong. I'm sure I did a lot of things wrong. 
But whatever it was I did wrong, I'm 14 years old, and my mom pulls the belt out, and she starts whacking me with it, and I started laughing. It just didn't hurt. It was just funny. And so she's whacking me with the belt, and I'm running down the hall going, ah! Pretty soon she started laughing, and we both had our backs against the wall. We slid down the wall. We were both looking at each other, cracking up, man. Just totally cracking up. It just didn't work anymore. Oh, yeah, but then my stepdad, I mean, he's 81 now, and, you know, he's finally, finally slowing down to where I, you know, I, I could probably beat him in a fight now. But anyway, but uh, I can remember the only time that I can remember he ever, he ever did anything physical was when I talked back to my mom. Do you know what that means, talking back? Yeah? When your mom says something, she says, be quiet, and you just keep on talking, right? We all have stories about what our moms did there. Well, my stepdad, I never called him dad, I always called him Bill. My stepdad backhanded me. All I remember was at one point I was standing on this side of the room, and the next thing I knew I was on my back on this side of the room. Yeah, that taught me not to talk back. So, you know, that was more gentle than you would think it is. He didn't break anything. Although he was standing over me like this with his fist doubled up, and that caused me not to move. Yeah. I was just real quiet, waiting for him not to be angry any longer, <laughs> and to go away. Gentle. There was a crisis of faith. Um, John fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, just like Peter and James did, even though Jesus had asked them to stay awake and keep watch. At Jesus' arrest, John ran away, just like the other disciples did, but he did something different. The other disciples just ran away. John followed at a distance, and Peter followed John. And the reason why we know anything about Jesus' arrest is because John apparently was from a family that was acquainted with the high priest, and so they let him into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was able to hear what went on in this sham trial that was going on in the middle of the night. By the way, they weren't supposed to try anybody. It was illegal to have a trial in the middle of the night, and that's what they did with Jesus. They arrested him in the middle of the night, and they tried him in the middle of the night. Well, John was let into the courtyard, and he got them to let Peter into the courtyard. So he ran off, but he still was following at a distance. Well, um, you saw on the video what took place, or the aftermath of what took place, when um, uh, the resurrection occurred. Mary, and we're going we're gonna to talk about Mary. Uh, I think that that's uh, who Pastor Craig is going to talk about on Easter Sunday. But Mary Magdalene was the first one to see the empty tomb. And she ran back and told the disciples, and then they ran to the tomb. As a matter of fact, I have the account of that here from John. This is John chapter 20, verses 3 through 8. So Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple, John never mentions himself by name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the other disciple. Uh, this is John's gospel. That's why we know so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. We think that John was younger than Peter, and obviously more of an athlete. And they reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John got to the edge of the tomb, and he stooped down and he looked in, looked in and he saw the linen cloths that 
Jesus had been wrapped in as burial cloths, and he saw them lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came up behind him, came huffing and puffing, running behind him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, this is John, who reached the tomb first, also went in, listen, and he saw and believed. John was likely the first disciple to believe in Jesus' resurrection, and he believed without seeing. Now here quickly are my application questions for you. Do you have a I'll believe it when I see it attitude? Do you realize the Apostle Paul wrote, in fact, this is also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I quoted extensively from that passage earlier, or read from that passage earlier. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. That means faith is what gives you the ability to see the spiritual, to see the unseen. If you're waiting to see, you may never see. And if you see, you no longer require faith, but it is faith that God wants you to have, right? Number next, do you love Jesus? You see, John was called the beloved disciple. He loved Jesus and Jesus loved him. Jesus had a unique and special love for him. It is likely that John was Jesus' closest friend on earth. Do you have any desire to have that sort of relationship with Jesus? He said, for you and I to have that sort of relationship with Jesus, we've got to draw near to him. We've got to pay attention to him. We've got to believe in him. And we've got to do what he says. And then, are you a trustworthy disciple? You wanna hear something powerful? Jesus said seven things as he was, uh, while he was on the cross. Seven last words of Christ. In fact, almost this series that, that I'm doing right now on the witnesses was almost the seven last words of Christ. One of the last things that Jesus said was he looked down from the cross and he saw John and he saw his mother. Note, John was the only one of the 12 at the foot of the cross who watched Jesus die, the only one. The rest of them were gone, they had all run off. John was there. The last standing disciple next to his mother, Jesus' brothers didn't even believe in him. Is it any wonder that Jesus, one of the other words, this isn't the one I'm about to tell you, but this is one of the first things Jesus said on the cross, was Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt rejected, forsaken utterly by men and even by his own father. Why? Because he became our sin. Um, one verse after uh, the passage that I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, said, this is verse 21, it says, and he who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin was Jesus. He became our sin. And during that time that he became our sin, he was forsaken and rejected because he became your sin and my sin. But he was rejected by everyone. But there was his mother and there was the disciple whom he loved. 
And so one of the other of the seven things that he said was, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. You know what he was doing? He didn't even trust his own brothers to take care of his mother. He trusted John. Here's my question for you and my question for me. Are you a trustworthy disciple? Can Jesus trust you? Can he trust you with what is closest to him? Can he trust you with what is most important to him? You see, if all I am doing is preserving my own life and thinking about myself and my own profit and taking care of myself and living the, you know, dog eat dog, law of the jungle and trying to get God on my side so that he can give me more resources so I can, you know, live healthy, wealthy and wise, then God's not going to trust me. Right. There are people who say I'm blessed and they just mean I got some money. That doesn't necessarily mean you're blessed. John was blessed because Jesus trusted him. And I wonder, are you a trustworthy disciple? And the last question I'll ask you is, are you ready and willing to be a witness? Because this is what I hope you're seeing and sensing and paying attention to as we go through this series on these witnesses. You are called to be a witness, which means you have to have witnessed something. Now, unlike them, you haven't stood at the foot of the cross like John and seen Jesus crucified. You haven't seen the resurrected Jesus like Peter and John and the rest of the 11 except Judas, um, the 12th who committed suicide. I might even talk about Judas. They all were witnesses. They were called to be witnesses. They were called to testify about what they'd seen. Do you know what you can be a witness to? Do you know what you can testify to other people about? About what God is doing and has done in your life. And if God doesn't seem to be doing anything in your life, maybe you need to step up and have a little faith. Maybe you need to open your eyes a little bit and ask God to help you recognize where he's working. And then you need to just be willing to be open with people. You don't have to force your way into people's lives. If people don't want to listen, then you don't have to keep talking. You know, uh, years, several years back, this is 2016 and 17, uh, I did uh, ride share. I drove for Uber and Lyft. And I would have people get in my car and, you know, I would, you know, try to carry on a conversation with them. And it was easy for me to see if they were interested in hearing about the gospel because all I had to do, a little easier for me than some people, but you can figure out a way to do it as well, is I would just tell them what I did for a living. They said, oh yeah, I'm the pastor of a church in downtown Garland. Or I'm the pastor of a church. Where is it? Downtown Garland. If they kept asking questions, I'd keep answering questions. Well, you know what? What made you want to become a pastor? See, it's just a natural thing then for me to be able to share with them and share the gospel with them. But you can find ways to do that as well. But there would be times when there'd be a conversation going. You know, I'd ask them about their lives or what they were doing or whatever. And they'd say, hey, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm a pastor of a church. Oh, silence. <laughs> absolutely nothing else would be said the rest of the trip. Well, I wouldn't keep trying to talk and shove something down their throat. They're not ready to listen. They're not ready to listen. I can pray for them and go on. But you and I are called to be witnesses. And so I hope that what you see here with Peter last week, and John this week, and these other disciples are examples of what a witness is like. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful